0: Good. Well, if we haven't met, my name's Owen, and we are going through a series in the Old Testament book of Daniel at the moment. We call this series Hope in Dark Times, and I think many of us in these last couple of years have found it hard going. Whether it's COVID or Brexit or a combination of the two, Political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, all kinds of unrest, the the, the riots that have occurred in the last couple of years in this nation and in other nations of the world that we've seen on the news, unrest surrounding, surrounding climate change issues, surrounding issues of race relations and inequality there. It feels like we've been through a very unsettling time. And we continue to do so, and, and into the midst of those kind of times, God's Word speaks with incredible clarity and incredible authority, but also with amazing hope. And this book of Daniel does that for us in a remarkable way. We've seen over the last six weeks, the first six chapters of Daniel, this stories of a group of Hebrew young men. Daniel and three others, who were taken with some of their peers as prisoners of war, effectively. Their, their land was conquered, and they were taken away to Babylon to serve the kings of Babylon. And, and there they lived, and, and they had a, a hectic time of it. They, they lived under pretty serious oppression. They lived, as we've read these stories, under almost, seems, constant threat of death one way or another, whether it was a fiery furnace or lion's dens, or if you don't get the interpretation of our dream right, I'm going to execute you, says one of the kings. It just was not a comfortable or easy time to live in. And yet we've also seen in those opening six chapters time and time and time again that in spite of appearances on the surface, God is in control and that he's caring for his people, providing for his people, and that there is hope for them, even in those most bleak of circumstances. And, and so today we're going to continue in chapter 7, and we need to just a uh, kind of heads up when we get to chapter 7, because like 1 to 6 that we've done the last few weeks, it's all the Sunday school stories. And they're, they're like a little bit quirky in places, but by and large, most of us have kind of heard them, we have an amount of familiarity, and they're kind of comforting stories to read. But there's a significant change that happens as we get to chapter 7. Chapters 1 to 6 have followed a clear chronology. They've built on one another uh, through the time. Chapter 7 just jumps out of sequence, out of nowhere. and We jump back to halfway between chapters 4 and 5 in terms of time. In chapters 1 to 6, we've had this, this narrative text recounting stories of what it was like living in Babylon for these Hebrew men. We've seen these events as they've sought to live faithfully and the incredible courage they displayed as they continued to live in obedience to God rather than obedience to these pagan kings. But now we move to the second half of the book and it's no longer about stories that have happened, but instead we get these incredible visions, it's, it's what's called apocalyptic literature, and they're prophetic visions about what will be. So rather than kind of straightforward narrative about what was, all of a sudden we're thrown into these kind of wild visions, and you'll see what I mean in a moment, that are about something that was yet to come. If chapters one to six have been like listening to grandpa tell stories from his youth, which they do have a bit of that feel to them, then this now is a bit more like a blockbuster film with dramatic pictures and incredible vistas and, and some really wild special effects that you find yourself reading and go, whoa, what on earth is going on here? But in chapters one to six, as we've looked, we've found all of the themes. And all of the information that we're going to need in order to help us understand chapter 7 onwards. But we've also had the scene set for us. We understand the context that Daniel received these visions from God into. We know that he and his friends were under constant threat that they were working for kings who wouldn't hesitate to put them to the sword if they stepped out of line or displeased them in any way, who wouldn't hesitate to throw them quite literally to the lions or to burn them to death if they stepped out of line. They faced clear choices in, that cert- in those situations to either obey human authorities and, and in so doing disobey God or to, to hold fast. And to obey God and trust Him and accept the consequences. And we've seen time and time again as they've done that. In spite of human kings who would want to speak to the contrary, God is in control. And chapter 7 now builds on that in a different way. It's no longer like a nice story, it's a bit wild there's loads and loads and loads of material. I mean, there is a monumental amount of material, even in just chapter 7, that we could spend a long time unpacking. We don't have time to do that today, so we're going to basically kind of skim across the surface of chapter 7 and acknowledge that there is one main theme, there is one key take-home from this chapter, and that's where we're going to sink our roots down this afternoon. So we're going to try, I'm going to try hard not to get down too many rabbit holes which is tempting in this passage, uh, and then we're going to zero in on that one main point as we get there. Is that okay? Cool. Let's read together. If you've got your Bible, why and you open up to Daniel chapter 7? If you don't have one with you, the words will be on the screen for you to follow on. We read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the man, I'm sorry, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, "Arise, devour much flesh." After this, I looked, and behold, another. Like a leopard, but with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. You think, whoa, <laughs> like, what is this? And Daniel has a dream from God, and in this dream, like, we've got the craziest, wildest looking beast creatures you could imagine. This lion, bear, leopard beasts with some extra additions like wings and ribs in mouths, and you're just like, what is going on? But it's actually not that complex, which is a relief. Okay, so this is a type of ancient literature that had common motifs and common pictures. And images that were used in order to represent certain things. And and there's kind of a spoiler alert because we're going to get to it later. But these beasts that Daniel saw represent kings or kingdoms. And and we find that out a bit more later. And actually, as we look, we also know that the lion was a, a very common motif used to represent. Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom it was something they used of themselves as a symbol if you remember back to chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar this lion who we've got now the first beast has got eagle's wings that then get taken off and then he's given the mind of a man if you were with us a few weeks back in chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon the lion king what happens to him he ends up losing his mind and we're told his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle, these eagle's wings. But then God restored his right mind to him. The mind of a man was given to him. This first beast is about Babylon. Scholars are, are pretty well agreed on that. The bear, again, scholars would say, represents the Medo Persian kingdom, which came next. And we could, this is going to be a rabbit hole if I'm not careful, so we're not going to get into it. It's the Medo Persians, okay? The leopard with rings represents the next great kingdom that came, the Greeks, and Alexander the Great. And there's amazing detail in it that you think, like, there's no way Daniel could have known this, right? Why on earth does that beast have four heads? Well, when Alexander the Great handed over his kingdom, he didn't have a biological successor. He handed over to four generals, the four heads of this kingdom or this empire that he passed onto these beasts represent the coming human kingdoms, bases of authority and power in the world. Now, there's no way Daniel could have known that that's what was going to happen. And yet God spoke to him in this dream and about these coming kingdoms. Now, he might have been able to guess if he'd looked at kind of the current... Climate that the Medo-Persians might come and nobble the Babylonians which we read about back in chapter 5 but he would have no way of knowing the Greeks would come next see the only way he could put these details in the only way he could know this is actually that God revealed it to him and we can take great encouragement from that Because we come to a God this afternoon who is not constrained by time. We come to a God this afternoon who knows all the days. Who knows what is yet to come. Who has purposed it. And amazingly, in his word, he has revealed some of that to us. Which is incredible. Incredible. Some things that have already been fulfilled, like these kingdoms that we can look back on and go, how on earth? But God spoke to Daniel and said, this is what's going to happen, Daniel. And we look back on it now with the privilege of being able to read God's word written at that time and go, wow, God, you're amazing. And it gives us confidence in his word. Many other things like the prophecies about Jesus Christ, where he'd be born. In, under which circumstances the, his life and death and resurrection prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before he came and we look at those now standing on this side of the fulfilment of those promises and prophetic words from God and we go, wow, God, you knew you really are sovereign you really do rule and reign over all things it brings great encouragement to us And it also gives us confidence when we come to bits like this next few verses. Let's read on from verse 7. Daniel, still in his vision. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it had ten horns i considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things or great boasts this is pretty hectic stuff we this this beast is exceedingly more terrifying and more terrible than the first three. It's another kingdom, a fourth. It's incredibly more powerful, more expansive in its reach and scope and destruction than the rest of them. It's distinct from them. And we're going to talk more about that beast and what it represents in a moment. But Daniel's vision moves on. We read from verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head pure like wool, or like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, a thousand thousands Served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. As Daniel's vision moves on, we get this incredible contrast. these chaotic scenes of beasts emerging from the ocean and and kind of warring on humanity, almost certainly warring on on God's people, and then all of a sudden we cut to a completely different kind of scene. As, as Daniel sees God, the Ancient of Days, seated on his throne. This is, this is a scene, unlike the chaos of the beasts coming out of the ocean, this is a scene of order. A scene of order. It's like a courtroom Scene. I mean, it's, it's no less intense, perhaps, than the beasts, because we see the Ancient of Days is, is quite something to behold. He's radiant in white robes and white hair. He's picture language, symbols of purity. He's, he's not like those beasts. He's pure. And he sits on a throne of fire that has, I love the idea of the throne with wheels, has wheels of fire and out from him and out from his throne comes yet more fire. This fire is a picture of a purifying. Fire has a refining thing about it. It's used in the purification of metals, it's used to to purify and refine things and this one on the throne, the Ancient of Days, who is completely pure, also has a refining power about him that those who are drawn near are either burned up in impurity or, or are refined and made pure themselves. And this picture there's lots of people there too we read the a thousand thousands you've got to understand this is is just a linguistic device to say lots so in in Hebrew if they wanted to emphasise something they'd just say it twice it's like if you stack it up one on top of the other it's like saying it's really really this and so when you say a thousand thousands it's just a way of emphasising there's lots of people there and then those are the ones that serve him. But who else is there? 10,000 times 10,000. It's like an even greater multitude. It's all the peoples of the earth. And all the peoples of the earth stood before him. And we read in verse 10, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is a slightly sobering scene because what's happening here is all of humanity is standing in judgment before God and the books are open that all of humanity is about to be held to account for their words their actions for their lives the books are opened and whilst Daniel is looking on in trembling at this scene his attention is taken away for a moment As the last horn of the final beast continues to make boasts about its own greatness in opposition to God. We read on. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the sun, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is Jesus, by the way. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In the days of this fourth beast, the son of man, Jesus, will come. His rule will be absolute. His kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. But, but this revelation of the Son of Man coming and ruling over all people doesn't seem to comfort Daniel, which is, is strange to us, I think. Because I think if you're a Christian and you read that bit and you hear this is the moment that Jesus comes to rule with justice, to rule perfectly perfectly to bring peace on the earth, we go, yes, (laughs) that's it. But Daniel is still unnerved. We read from verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this." this. This vivid vision of these beasts that would dominate the people of God and this vision of judgment of the great multitude standing before the throne of God with the books open ready to face judgment has left Daniel troubled the, the penny hasn't dropped about the one like a son of man who would come Daniel's stuck at this point of judgment and so he asked the angel who was there to tell him what it means he's like I, like, I don't know what's going on right now. And it was like, there's, there's wild beasts and there's destruction and then there's the Almighty, the Ancient of Days on the throne. And I, I think that's a good thing, but it's also kind of an unnerving scene because there's judgment and, like, can you help? We read on. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms. See, I told you. <laughs> who shall arise out of the earth? But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. It's going to be a rough ride, essentially. But in the end, God will rescue his people. That's, that's in summary. The angel says, like, these beasts are, are going to rise up, these kings are going to wreak havoc. It's not going to be easy for the people of God. But God will rescue his people. And they will share in his kingdom forever. Now there was probably some comfort for Daniel at this point. When he hears that. But he wants to know more about this fourth beast that's clearly different to the others. He's still unsettled. And so he... Asks again, we find in verse 19, "...then I decided to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet." And about the ten horns which were on its head and and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said... As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High." And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand. And for a time, times and half a time, that's a really cryptic way of saying three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. That's, that's God's people, it's Christians. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Now, though most scholars agree on the first three, there's a bit more debate about the fourth and what's going on there. And I don't want us to get down a rabbit hole, so we're going to really quickly on it. Okay, A lot of people would say they think it represents Rome. The scope of the Roman Empire, the expanse of the Roman Empire, the manner in which the Roman Empire spread and conquered their enemies and crushed, trod underfoot their enemies, was unlike any kingdom that had preceded them. So it, it makes some sense that it could be Rome. The other question, though, is whether it's actually a kingdom that's yet to come. Because there are other things about it that you think, well, that's not Rome. Like, Rome didn't have, like, a clear ten kings with then another greater ruler that stood head and shoulders above the rest of them at the end of those ten. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So then some people will say, well, no, no, this this is something that's yet to come. Some people will look at it and say no this isn't actually any more a physical reality this is just a a spiritual picture of satan and demons who would wreak havoc on the earth i personally think there's a little bit of both hand about this i think it was a bit about rome i think it does represent the roman empire The reasons for that are that the Son of Man, Jesus, in this passage, comes in this fourth empire. Jesus was born under Roman rule. And the Roman Empire was like none that came before it. But I think there's a future aspect to this too. Because the ten horns, the ten kings... But also, most significantly, Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so when it talks about Jesus ruling and having complete dominion on the earth, this kingdom being removed completely and replaced by the kingdom of God on the earth, well, I I, I don't know about you, but when I look around, I think that's not where we are right now. That's a future reality which we will see when Christ returns in glory and makes all things new. When he returns for his people and we read in Revelation when he returns to judge the living and the dead. See this, the judgment that is yet to come that's spoken of in these passages and the return of the son of man to rule over all things has not yet happened. And so I think there's a future reality to this. I also think that the expansive scope, this absolute rule around the nations of the world, I don't think we've yet seen that in the way that's depicted here. But I'm not going to make a big thing of it. I'm happy that people disagree over exactly what this fourth beast represents. And that's partly because I don't think Until it happens, we're going to know for certain. That's part of the reason I think it hasn't happened yet, because I think we'd be in no doubt if there was opposition like that. But I also think that if we get so caught up on trying to work out who it is and guessing whether they've come yet or is that them, like if you ever spoke, there are some people who just get so caught up on this stuff that they're constantly trying to guess like, if you were to put a name on this, ten, on this little horn that comes up and removes the others and reigns supremely over this kingdom against the people of God, if you had to put a name, i would kind of hesitant to use it because I think people get all funny about it, but the Antichrist. And you get people, you speak to Christians who are, like, fixated on trying to work out who the Antichrist is, and they're like, Trump. I'm sure it's Trump. You, I, I'm... And then you get like the other political end of the spectrum saying, it's Biden. Like, for serious, it's def- he is the Antichrist. You just watch. And it, like, it's happened all throughout human history. And I just think we've, we've got to be humble enough to go, hey, like, we don't know. But, but when the Antichrist does come in the way that we read in Daniel and we read in Revelation, I tell you what, you're not going to miss it. (laughs) It's going to be pretty obvious. So we should probably stop wasting our time trying to second guess who it may or may not be. Because at a big picture level, this is what this passage is really all about. See, these four beasts represent human rulers and authorities who set themselves up in opposition to God. And in opposition to God's people, it represents those who have done and those who will do. There are specific kingdoms that we can look at and go, yeah, I think it was them. (laughs) But big picture, this is simply saying there are human rulers and authorities who are influenced by Satan and who are influenced by powers of darkness who set themselves up in opposition to God, in rebellion against God and in opposition to his people. National and international leaders who don't recognise God as their ultimate authority. I reckon we've got a few of those right now. Particularly when you look around the world. And we could read these verses about leaders like that. Who will oppress God's people and we, and we could begin to look around the world and, and live in fear. Because just like those beasts that came up out of the ocean, there are governments and organizations and more who do just that today. Who oppose and persecute and oppress Christians. There are Christians around the world today living under oppressive regimes. Living much like Daniel and his friends were in Babylon under threat of death for their faith. There's a great organisation called Open Doors. I'd encourage you to check out their website actually and to to allow it to move you to pray for those who are living in that kind of circumstance under threat of death simply for professing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some some countries in the top ten at the moment when it comes to their government's persecuting Christians in North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran. Here's a short excerpt from a report that Open Doors put together last year detailing what's going on in some parts of the world. They write this, The persecution of Christians is getting more severe than ever, affecting increasing numbers of believers around the world. A staggering 260 million Christians in the top 50 countries on the World Watch List, that's the the list of the top 50 countries where Christians are most persecuted for their faith, a staggering 260 million Christians face high or extreme levels of persecution for their faith. In the previous year, it was 245 million. There's a 15 million jump as persecution spread from 2019 to 2020. Attacks against churches have risen an astonishing 500% in 2020 to 9,488 compared to 1,847 the preceding year. These attacks include church closures and the significant increase is largely due to the actions of authorities in China. And if you'd seen any of that in the news... As Christians were told they're not allowed to gather to worship, their buildings closed down. But even here, where we are, we're a very, very long way off that, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But yet, even here, Christian beliefs, Christian values, ethics are increasingly mocked and seen as outdated, irrelevant, or worse. Dangerous. To say that Jesus is the only way is narrow. We need to be more inclusive than that. And those who hold them are becoming more marginalized. But instead of causing us to live in fear, I believe these verses give us hope. Firstly, they give us hope because God said it would be like this. God said it would be the case that people would rise in opposition to Christians, would seek to persecute and oppress Christians. Though it shouldn't take us by surprise. It always makes me chuckle when people... It doesn't make me chuckle, really, actually. It grieves me, if I'm honest. When people become Christians because someone leads them to believe that following jesus will mean they glide through the rest of this life pain-free prosperous and popular i follow jesus and he'll make all your wildest dreams come true you'll be healthy and wealthy and you'll have everything you ever dreamed of and when people believe that They pretty quickly fall away or get disillusioned or feel betrayed when that doesn't happen for them. But you know, the Bible is much more honest than that. (laughs) These verses that we've read today give us a heads up. It's like, guys, eyes open. It's not going to be plain sailing. There'll be opposition. It's not going to be a comfortable ride. And these verses don't stand alone in Scripture. Particularly if you open up the New Testament, I mean, just a few examples in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says this to Timothy as he writes, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's kind of like, okay, (laughs) that's pretty clear. In 1 Peter 3, we read this, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Ouch. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. But have no fear. Don't be troubled. In John 16, Jesus said this to his followers. And in turn to us, he said this. In the world you will have tribulation or you will have troubles. But take heart. For I have overcome the world. See, that statement there from Jesus is the heart of what Daniel 7 is all about. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In the world, you will have troubles. God, I, I I hate to break it to you if you didn't realize this, but like following Jesus doesn't guarantee you like plain sailing. You're, you're gonna have troubles. But you have an unshakable, eternal hope because Christ has overcome and He will return for His people. So whatever's going on for you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, take heart. Whatever's going on for you. The list of Christians throughout the ages who've endured hardships, opposition, persecution, and more is a pretty long list. In fact, in the grand scheme of global history, I'd suggest that it's the norm for Christians to be mocked or worse for their faith. If you read your history globally, not just like selective bits of the last hundred years of British history where people who said they were Christians had a cultural position. Western 21st century and going back 20th century Christians often didn't really feel like that was the case and often don't feel like that's the case. See, I, I think on the whole we're very comfortable we're very at home in our surroundings. In fact, often it would seem there's really very, very little to distinguish us from the world around us. We, we tend to worry about the same things. We chase after the same things. We find ourselves buying into the life that advertisers sell to us. We broadly hold many of the same values, aspire to live the same lifestyles and have the same things. We use the same metrics to make many of our decisions. We're so surrounded by the world and its messages that we often unthinkingly and uncritically just consume it and as a result conform to it. But we need to know this. The cultural comfortable environment that we've known in recent history in the West is an abnormality when it comes to history and when it comes to what's happening on in the globe right now. And actually there is a shift. There is a growing intolerance in society for Christian values and for those who would seek to live in obedience to God. Those who make God's word their ultimate standard will find themselves increasingly marginalized. I think we begin to see that happening. And where that isn't the case for Christians, it's mostly because Christians are, are conforming to the pattern of this world rather than allowing scripture to shape their values, their view, their priorities. And as contemporary culture once more sets out its stall in opposition to God, we, like Daniel and his friends, have a choice. Do we acquiesce to the world and take our cues from culture? Or do we look to scripture and live in obedience to God? We have a choice. You have a choice. But we also have a hope. If we trust in Christ... We belong to an everlasting kingdom. We have a king who will rule and reign forever and who invites us to draw near to him. Those who stand in opposition to God right now will have their time. These these beasts will rule. But their fate is certain. Their time is limited. However much things feel out of control, however bleak things appear, However dark the night feels around you, the dawn is coming. Our hope in Christ is sure. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will surely come again. Daniel concludes in chapter 7 like this. He writes, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel ends this passage still freaked out. Why? He concludes with God reigning and we kind of think, come on, Daniel. So why was he alarmed? Should we be alarmed? Daniel was alarmed, I think, because he believed this was true. This was going to happen. And he knew he was in the thick of it. He knew that more of his friends and people he knew would be put to death for their faith. He knew there was more to come, that those who followed God would face fierce persecution. But also, he firmly believed that everyone was going to stand in judgment before God. And that's a serious and scary place to land. Especially so for Daniel. Because he didn't know some of what we know today. He didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. He didn't have the benefit of living this side of Christ coming. He didn't know what God was going to do with the coming Messiah. He didn't know that Christ was going to come and take judgment in our place. Bear the weight of the wrath of God in our place. That when we stand before him as those who are in Christ, instead of facing judgment, God will look on us and see the perfect righteousness of Christ instead of our broken mess and go, well done, good and faithful servant. This was the case for the Old Testament prophets like Daniel. He had a message, but he didn't fully understand its meaning. It was the case for Daniel here. He had to trust God with it. But some of it was for our benefit, for our encouragement, for our strengthening. We find that as we read the New Testament, that's how Old Testament prophecy is spoken of, that we would be able to see the sovereign hand of God at work through the generations. We would be able to see that which has already unfolded in generations past, that God said was going to happen, and take courage. In fact, actually, we later read in Daniel 12, Daniel says this. says, "'As for me, I heard but could not understand.'" So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And this is the answer Daniel got. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. He's like, Daniel, this isn't for you to know. This is for the future, for them to be benefited and for them to understand. He wouldn't and couldn't and was not supposed to know. So Daniel was troubled because he didn't see how this was going to work out. Yet we can look at it now. And while there are still aspects of that fourth beast that we don't quite know how that's going to work out. Instead of being troubled with the rest of scripture in the New Testament, we're left in no doubt. And we find incredible comfort. The Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, pure and purifying. That the Son of Man, Christ, has come and will come again to rule and reign Forever. Those who find hope in Jesus, I know there's many of us this afternoon, we're not left alarmed or confused like Daniel. Instead, we're left comforted and full of hope because the end is sure. The Ancient of Days will reign forever. And because Jesus took the judgment for us, because he saw our guilt and took it upon himself, For those who find forgiveness in him will reign with him forever. What an incredible hope, hey? I wonder if you could stand with me. We're going to pray and then Johnny lead us in a final song.